Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Blavius, MD, F-A-I-U-M, F-A-C-E-P. Dr. Blavius is a professor of medicine at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina, and as well as a member of the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Francis Hospital in Columbus, Georgia. Dr. Blavius is with us today to discuss ultrasound credentialing. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you and thank you for having me. So you actually just came from the ultrasound credentialing meeting, is that correct? I did. It was the task force meeting. We're working on some guidelines that are grade-based. Gotcha. And uh, that would be quite welcome, wouldn't it? <laughs> so yes, it, definitely. Ultrasound is really, um, seems like it's taken off uh, in use over the last 10 years, especially in our world, emergency medicine and the ICUs. It's been around for years, and I wonder what has brought about that recent interest or why, why does it seem somewhat novel these days? Sure. You know, it, it really has been around technically since probably the 1940s. Obviously, it was in the realm of radiology and cardiology for some time and entered clinical medicine outside of obstetrics probably about 20 years ago. I think the recent change and almost a revolution is due to multiple factors, probably the size of the machines and the expense. There are now multiple manufacturers that make it for us, the point-of-care practitioner who uses it at his or her patient's bedside. And some of it is just the effect of the mass of people that are using it. And I think if you go to some of the studies that indicate a new technology or technique can take 19 years to proliferate to the common user, we're probably coming up to that point. And I think if you throw in a few other factors like some of the guidelines that have been issued internationally, AHRQ recommendations about ultrasound-guided central line placement. It's become a perfect storm for ultrasound use, and ultrasound zealots like myself are definitely in heaven right now as everyone is trying to pick up an ultrasound probe. It's interesting to hear you call it a perfect storm given your interest. What do you mean by perfect storm? Well, I think there are just so many factors that are forcing people that otherwise may still hold off on converting to ultrasound to convert to using ultrasound. The naysayers, sometimes it's the senior faculty in a department uh, that have held off, and definitely the younger generation. So in the years past, ultrasound aficionados would come into a department, whether it's medicine, emergency medicine, anesthesia, or critical care, and they may be the lone wolf that's using ultrasound, whereas now they have lots of things to talk about, ultrasound-related with lots of people. So it's, it's in a way, it's a perfect storm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And did your primary interest in ultrasound begin with your emergency medicine training or ICU training? It's probably actually back to the final year of medical school. And then it really exploded in my emergency medicine training, where the best way to put it colloquially is I found out I could cheat. So when my colleagues examined an abdomen and pressed in the right upper quadrant, I could actually see with ultrasound, and yes, there were gallstones or not, or the suspicion of cardiac malfunction of some sort, is there a cardiomyopathy or perhaps a pericardial effusion, they would be left guessing. With ultrasound, I knew for sure. And this kind of perpetuated to different examination types, procedures, and from there I decided to do a fellowship and now tend to use ultrasound in almost every part of the body and just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the utility keeps expanding, doesn't it? What do you see as the importance in credentialing? Why should we pursue credentialing of ultrasound use? So credentialing has several important factors. First, in theory, you can only do things that you're credentialed to do. 
So for me, I'm not credentialed to do craniotomies, so I shouldn't really do them. I guess I am credentialed to do burr holes in emergency situations. So if I do one, I'm justifying in doing it. I'm permitted. There's some legal protection if there are complications. It also sets uh, a bit of a standard. One of the issues with emergency medicine, early use of ultrasound, was kind of a fly-by-night operation where people would get trained in a course, didn't really learn enough to be safe, would use ultrasound, sometimes make mistakes, miss things. A credentialing process, similar to the one that SCCM published in May of 2013, should really guide a clinician through that initial learning period, then becoming proficient, gaining some real competence, and being safe, and also helps them to maintain some level of competence as they go on because they have to get recredentialed. And so what should folks do if they're interested in becoming credentialed? What is the recommended process? So probably the first thing is check with the hospital you work at. Is there already a pathway for critical care ultrasound? In many cases, there is not. So then it's a process of setting up a credentialing pathway. Often starts with the medical executive board working with the credentialing board of the hospital. A lot of times uh, when you come to them with a proposal to start credentialing for critical care ultrasound, this may be news to them. Hopefully there are some colleagues on the panel or on the board that use ultrasound. If not, they will have lots of questions. The beauty of using a document like the SCCM from May of 2013 is it creates a pathway so you can establish the standards. Then the next step really is pushing that through the board so it becomes hospital policy. The document does detail fairly well the numbers of studies, how to document studies, how to keep a logbook of your procedures, your scans, how to compare them to official readings or have some oversight, and it'll really take you through that process to the end, the end being you're finally credentialed and allowed to use ultrasound in the hospital for decision-making purposes. I guess at first glance, it seems almost overwhelming to go through that process, especially at a hospital that doesn't have a credentialing program in place already. And I imagine with other things as well, there's always so-called turf battles. I don't, you know, I don't want you to be doing that. What recommendations do you have for people to negotiate that type of credentialing for ICU ultrasound use? The, the best thing is to find out who your allies and perhaps enemies are. And not enemies in the true sense, but those detractors that would rather you not use ultrasound. And that varies from hospital to hospital. In general, you would have support from your internal medicine colleagues. Hopefully they're sitting on the executive board or the credentialing committee. Perhaps you can win over the cardiologists and obstetricians. And I think we shouldn't rule out other traditional imaging users because sometimes they may be quite open-minded. Our radiology colleagues sometimes say, sure, the time has come. And then also find out who's going to stand firmest against you and perhaps negotiate with them outside of the, the meeting room, see if they can become flexible on some issues. Ultimately, there are some things where no one can really fight you on, and those tend to be some critical procedures such as central line placement, using echo and cardiac arrest, and some resuscitation of unstable patients you'll find that nobody can sit around a room regarding, regardless of their background and say, I don't want the patient scanned while they're having a cardiac arrest, or I'll come and do it for you, or for a central line. So invariably, you can make inroads and get something like this passed. The scope may have to change over time. Initially, it may need to be narrow, just a few procedures, maybe scan, checking the bladder just before you catheterize somebody, and cardiac arrests, ruling out pneumothorax, and then later expand. And that actually makes sense so that you don't bite off more than you can chew right away. Mm -hmm. Great points. 
How do you see the role of these ultrasound courses? For instance, we have one or two here, along with Congress. Uh, other societies do as well. Where do those fit into one's own training for ultrasound proficiency? They're a great start. And I think a, a good example is to contrast it against the way I started learning ultrasound, which is about 20, 21 years ago, I would grab a probe, a machine, and I would sneak in and scan. I had little clue about what I was looking at. I would try to use reference books that were not really available widely at the time. So you truly learned on the fly. Yes. And it was extremely inefficient, just extremely inefficient. Now you can go to a course, let's say like SCCM offers. There are also lots of other courses, as people know, out there. A lot of times the courses are two or three days, and they'll get you the fundamentals that you need to be able to pick up the probe, the ultrasound transducer, and scan patients or volunteers in an educational type setting in a safe way, and also allow you to keep learning. So once you have those basics, you won't be as frustrated. When I was trying to find the gallbladder, not knowing what it would look like, or the heart, not knowing which views to use. Very frustrating. These courses will take a lot of the frustration out of it, but it's important to realize that after a two or three day course, you're not really ready to go make a life and death decision about something. You need more practice, more training. And so what do you recommend people do once they get back to their home institution? Again, not from that necessarily the credentialing, but to truly advance their skill set in, in ultrasound. And especially, you know, folks who perhaps are returning to an institution where there is no mentor, in, at least in critical care or their own specialty, to help them train. I think the most important thing is pull out the ultrasound machine the very next day if you can. Start using it. There's no true study that's looked at this, but... It's quite clear the longer you take to pull that machine out after a course, the less likely you are to use it ever. So pull it out and scan some easy patients. Perhaps if you want to do a lung ultrasound on a patient that's on a ventilator and you know that they're fluid overloaded during congestive heart failure, you'll get good results. You'll feel good about them. It's not the time to scan the heart of a 300 kilo patient that is in your ICU, you won't see anything. Use this time to really get comfortable with the machine. At the same time, look for that mentor, perhaps. You can find somebody in a different department that'll help you. And if not, decide which ultrasound applications you can perform and get a good, reliable follow-up on. Perhaps patients that are getting CTs of the chest or abdomen, let's say you're looking for something in the abdomen. Or you know that a full-blown echo is going to be done by cardiology on somebody later in the day. You can sneak in a peek and look at left ventricular function, make sure there's no pericardial effusion, perhaps use some color Doppler, and then you can compare it to the formal one done a few hours later. And that's how you start learning. And probably it's best to start keeping a log right away of all of your procedures, all of your scans, because ultimately you may present those to the credentialing committee to get credentialed. Great. Brings it back right to the credentialing. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> what do you see as new what's, uh, or what's coming down the pike and what are, what are some novel uses of ultrasound perhaps that some of the listeners haven't heard of? I think one of the biggest things right now is ultrasound in the evaluation of presenting complaints or findings. So somebody with chest pain or undetermined cause for their hypotension. Protocols that don't obey any particular body line. So we're not just focused on the heart, on the lungs, but protocols that take you through a quick analysis at the bedside to possibly explain why this patient is hypoxic or short of breath or hypotensive. I think those are becoming much more common. A few other things include more and more research on actual outcomes. You know, what ultrasound interventions or scans can we do? How do they affect outcome of the patient? 
And I think perhaps even more distantly related to your question is on the technical end, I think we're going to see more and more automation coming in where the ultrasound machine does more for us. For instance, practitioners that maybe don't have great cardiac experience, but have enough skill to get an ultrasound image of the heart. We're going to start seeing probes that are four-dimensional, so they actually capture the heart in real time and probably do some of the analysis for you. So they'll bring uh, higher-end expertise down to a less experienced practitioner. I would certainly welcome that. <laughs> any, any help I can get is, is always great. Other thoughts or experiences you wanted to share with the listeners? I think for anyone that's not used ultrasound, talk to those that have been won over by the power of ultrasound. And it's almost invariably by a a unique case or a single case where they really made the day or saved the patient. And I think invariably, if you talk to most ultrasound users, they can recall a case like that where the patient was unstable and they found the AAA or there's no way they should have had an hemothorax, but yet there it was on ultrasound and x-ray wouldn't have been there for another hour. Whatever that case is, almost everyone has one. And once they experience it, they're usually a, a true believer. So uh, for those of you that are just starting or considering, that case will come, and then afterwards you'll, you'll sort of see the light, so to speak. Great. Well, I hope you all see the light out there, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for inviting me to speak. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.